Hey folks, it's Dylan with the Eat Wild Podcast. In this episode, I'm hanging out with Jesse Zeman with the BC Wildlife Federation. He's an avid uh, hunter and fisherman, and uh, more importantly, he's uh, one of the strongest advocates we have in British Columbia for conservation. Uh, we're sitting down, we're talking a little bit about uh, things that you can do to advocate for fish and wildlife and habitat in British Columbia, but we do take a few minutes to talk about sheep hunting, so stick around and learn a bit about sheep hunting, and uh, hopefully... Okay. Um, Take some action so for wild things in British Columbia. Dylan here with the Eat Wild Podcast, and I'm hanging out with my friend Jesse Zeman from the BC Wildlife Federation, who um, spends a lot of time talking about conservation and uh, does a lot of good things for wildlife in British Columbia. And we're just coming off uh, last week. We were, hey, what were we doing last week, Jesse? Talking about uh, advocating for wild things. Cool, yeah, yeah. We were having beers for wild things, so we had our inaugural beers for wild things event. We had uh, took over the Legion on Commercial Drive and invited the community of Eat Wilders to come and hang out and um, Jesse did this amazing presentation on what people can do to try and advocate for fish and wildlife in British Columbia. So um, how do you think that went Jesse? Yeah I think it went well. It was a great turnout, super diverse crowd which is really great to see and kind of that younger demographic which is really kind of what we need to, to start to come out of the woodwork in BC. Cool. So before we get um, before we get too far along here, like, so maybe just tell me about uh, introduce yourself to the folks who are maybe new to the podcast and uh, who don't know you. And what do you what are you up to? Okay, I'm with the BC Wildlife Federation. I'm now the director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration, I guess. And uh, my background is completely unrelated to fish and wildlife. <laughs> uh, my uh, I've got a background in business. In my real job, I'm supposed to be a pilot. Somehow ended up involved in fish and wildlife conservation. I think mostly because you kind of go out and experience the mountains as a young kid and the lakes, and you get to go fish places like the Fraser. And in in a relatively short time span, you see these places start to change pretty quickly. And you know, nowadays the Fraser River, I guess you're it's a really good year now when it's open. And uh, in terms of the wildlife side, you know, we were seeing it moose and caribou and mule deer and elk in parts uh, in decline. So I guess that's kind of how you end up here. Yeah, it doesn't take very long when you're when you really care about these things. That uh, well, I mean, I fill my freezer every year on deer, white-tailed deer and elk. It's kind of well, salmon as well. Like that's like that's just that's as much as my it's my identity, but it's also my sustenance. It's also my way of connecting with my community and when you start to realize, you start to go out there and you're going to work harder and harder at trying to acquire these animals to fill your freezer and, and recognizing, too, that, like, I'm a pretty darn good fisherman. I'm a whole lot better fisherman than I was 25 years ago when I started making efforts to fish, and I'm a whole lot better whitetail hunter now and a lot better elk hunter, and, and yet it's getting progressively more and more challenging for me to successfully have a harvest. So at some point, you got to step back and go, geez, you know, this isn't working out so good, and i got to, like, figure out what's going on and and um you know i'm well aware of what's going on because 
I'm one of those people who's been out there for I'm 42 this yesterday, as of yesterday, and uh, I'd say like the last 31 years I've been paying attention to what's going on in our landscape and and observing what's going on, and it kind of breaks my heart. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's it. I mean, uh, and for I guess the data side of it, when I started learning about that, was actually when I was doing my undergrad degree. I ended up doing a uh, an honors project or a thesis on um, hunter recruitment and retention. And so you look at the history of hunting in BC too, and you go from 176,000 hunters in 1981 down to 84,000 by 2004, and change the hunting regulations, reduce the harvest, reduce the number of hunters, and we continue to see moose decline and caribou decline and, you know, fish generally decline, or at least the anadromous fish, and so, you know, you start scratching your head and going, okay, why is it that we're taking, you know, fewer hunters and anglers off or on the landscape, and we still continue to have these declines, so there's obviously something else or multiple other things at play, and that's kind of how you get involved, I guess. That's interesting, I, and that's a great point because we have seen a decline. And actually, well, this is how we met. Actually, we, we met a 15 years ago, and we yeah. were both talking about hunter recruitment because at, at the time, like I thought, hunting would be a it, we were a dying breed as hunters because there just was no interest in 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 the, in the activity. And, and both you and I are about the same age, and you know we both had a strong passion for getting out there and hunting. Yet our you know our community was basically like mostly old white men over 60 were the only other people that were really passionate about it so we had talked about like well we should we've got to find a way to like make connect young people to hunting because it'll help us be able to advocate for hunting down the road and, and make it relevant so yeah. that it just doesn't disappear yeah right? yeah yeah and so the interesting thing with that is we we did see hunter numbers increase and you know what we've learned or what we knew is that actually most people are hunting friendly and on top of that they're hunting interested so there's a whole bunch of people who would like to try hunting but don't know people other people who hunt and of course it's a peer taught activity so how do you get exposed to it and that's where you know e-wild plays such a valuable role especially in the lower main line is giving people um, the opportunity to learn how to hunt but that's part of the learning is it's not that people don't want to hunt and fish it's that they don't have access to people that can teach them how to do it and then after that you run into issues around sustainability and you know things like moose where 30 years ago, you could buy an over-the-counter tag across just about the entire province of British Columbia and go hunt moose in a year. And now, um, pretty much all across the province, now you have to put in for a lottery draw and hope you get drawn to hunt moose. So, you know, the world's kind of turned upside down in that case. Yeah, and then if you get drawn, you might you know, get your draw, you get excited, you got to go hunting with your community, and you're going to show up to where you go hunting. And there's not going to be a tree left. Yeah. You're going to wonder, where, where the hell, they, where, there's not a tree around here for a moose to be standing behind. So how the hell are we going to find a moose? I've, I've been through that. Yeah. So so in this podcast, and I haven't done a great job of introducing it at all, um, we kind of got into chatting. But what I thought we'd do, because when I post this up online, I'm going to say we're going to talk about conservation and wildlife management issues. And, and I think the, the thought of why we got back together this week just after um, our presentation on, on uh, Wednesday there is that, you know, we had a group of 60 people come into the room and packed this room on Commercial Drive, which was which is just awesome to see. It's a rainy night in Vancouver. 60 people showed, so 50 people signed up for the event and 60 people showed up, which I thought was tremendous for like Vancouver folks are generally flaky when it comes to their <laughs> evening activities and they all showed up. So, so that was a real success. But the feedback that I got from the group was that like some of the things we're talking about, like if you don't know a lot about resource management or wildlife management or or 
how hunting regulations uh, are used as a tool for managing wildlife populations and, and what some of the stressors are on on the populations and habitat that, it, you know, in a one hour discussion with an expert like yourself, like there's a lot to take in. So I thought it'd be worthwhile just kind of hitting on some of the things that I think were a little bit ambiguous, not ambiguous, but just, just require a little bit more of an in-depth knowledge about. And uh, we can chat about that. But because I know when I post this up, like I'm thinking, some people are going to see, they're going to see like, oh, Dylan and Jesse talking about resource management. They're going to be like, oh, that's boring. So I thought because we just spent, we've been hanging out here, having dinner together, and we've been basically talking about sheep hunting for the past two hours. So I thought, well, like, that's really what people want to talk about. It's like, you know, <laughs> where, where do I go sheep hunting? Where do I go sheep hunting? Like, what gear do I need? You know, so we could totally do a podcast on sheep hunting. So I just thought it's like a, as, a, as like a teaser, as a, like just to get people in the door for this podcast. We should just talk about one sheep-related topic, like one of the most frequently asked questions about sheep. And then maybe we, like, we talk about that, and then people get interested, and then they're like, okay, I'll stick around for, like, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the heavy stuff, right? So, okay. So you're up for that? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Okay, so what's the most frequently asked? <laughs> you're a sheep hunter. You're a passionate guy that loves yeah. sheep, and, you, and every time I get a chance to bend your ear on it, I'll, I'll ask you about it. Um, what's the most frequently asked question, Jesse, that you get about sheep? Yeah, depends on the species, I guess, but what we were talking about is the when. I think that's the big one is, is everybody kind of says, well, what time should we be there for the opener? Or should we go late or should we go in the middle of the season? And so everybody's kind of conflicted on that, I think. Well, let's talk about that because, I mean, that's okay. basically what we talked about. Yeah. I'm conflicted. Yeah. So there's there's pros and cons of going for earlier in the season, uh, mid-season or late season. Mm-hmm. And let's lay that out and, and have a chat about it. Sure. So I, I think <coughs> when you go, you know, the season – uh, for for thinhorn sheep, for stone and dolls, is an August 1st opening. And so at that time of the year, typically you're going to find the rams up high. They're all bunched up, and, and they're pretty visible. They're pretty easy to see. Uh, so I think that that's probably the time to go if, if what you want to do is see a lot of sheep and, and probably harvest a ram. Uh, I feel like after the first couple weeks and the pressure's turned up, I feel like they know where they want to go that keeps them out of the eye of hunters um, because you know a lot of your time spent sheep hunting is glassing from a long ways off so I think after the pressure turns up they have their little hidey holes that they like to go and hang out in to stay clear of everybody and okay uh, so 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 a couple of just to reinforce a couple of things you said so I mean they sheep kind of live in very specific places in BC and yep. and guys who know how to hunt them whether it's guides or regular sheep hunters are going to be at these specific sheep hills on opening day, knowing that those sheep are going to be in specific spots. Yeah. So you have a, so you can try and beat those guys there for August first, and try and be up the hill ahead of them, and hopefully, if you're already there, then they'll have to like go find another valley. And and the problem is they know where those spots are more than you do because you're just mm-hmm. exploring generally. And if you have a hot tip, maybe you, yeah. maybe you got the hot yeah. tip and you can get there first. Um, so there's there's more competition. Yeah, typically, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I guess what you're saying indirectly is sheep are very have high fidelity to to their places. So if you you know if you find them in a spot one year, chances are they're going to be there the next. That's part of their ecology, is they pick spots and they stick to them. But in terms of the competition side, yes, for sure. I mean, people go for the opener, but people go for the opener because it's a higher success rate hunt. Um, and in terms of, you know, you're going to run into guides, you're going to run into other residents. I mean, 
the farther you push from your access point, whether it's off of a highway or off of a lake or off of uh, off of a sandbar somewhere that you get dropped off in a plane, the farther you push back, you know, the the less competition, at least from people who are accessing the same way as you are, the less competition you're going to have. So, and I would say under you know when you run into other people, if you're sitting on rams, I think that if there's more than one legal ram in the bunch, you're probably better off trying to work with a guide or another resident hunter uh, as opposed to trying to pressure these sheep or be on them first or something in open morning. I, I feel like there's room for everybody uh, in those situations and I feel like you're probably better off working with a guide or another resident so that you both have a better chance of success instead of neither of you having a very good chance of success. Yeah, just basically screwing each other up. Yeah. Which is typically what happens when we're elk hunting or right. know, <laughs> yeah. some degree sheep hunting with my experience. So, okay, so so just to, re just to recap that. So the, you're, gonna, you're more likely to see sheep earlier in the season because they're gonna be higher up. Uh, my understanding is that they, when it's warmer out, they work their way higher up the mountain to get away from, there's more wind up top, which is reduces the bugs. That's the other thing about hunting in the first week of August is that you're, you're most likely going to be dealing with bugs, which sure. given de depending on the year, it could be it can be challenging. It could be yep. you know it can be unpleasant at times. Um, so if you wait for a couple couple weeks, you get the first frost in, right. and there's fewer bugs. Yep. However, the benefit of bugs around is that the sheep will move out of the woods and up into the higher elevations, right? Yeah, and I think uh, I mean when you look at their especially you know when when we're outside of the breeding season their job is to get access to the best resources they possibly can and so usually they're going to follow the snow line up because that's where you have the highest kind of digestible energy and protein content in the food so a lot of times yes definitely bugs um, can drive them nuts if it's not windy um, but the the underlying factor around their kind of seasonal movements is typically around food so the higher you know you know better digestible energy higher protein that's where you're going to find them and that's partially why they're up high early and also sightability is much higher for a hunter because you can cover that many more ranges of mountains from a glassing spot if the rams are up high as opposed to if they're down in the buck brush or hiding close to the timber yeah absolutely and so once this once the pressure starts though they know that being visible and out on a high spot probably isn't a good idea Yes, and so they so figure it out pretty quick because yeah. if they're standing out there, they attract more attention. And yeah, exactly. And, pushed and, off of there. and in these bands of rams, of course, they've seen this once or twice because, you know, a legal ram in BC is full curl or eight years old. So, you know, they're going to have, as a two or three-year-old, they'll split off from the ewes and lambs and pick up with a band of rams. And so they've seen this drill more than once, right? And so you could have rams that are 10 or 12 years old in the bunch. So as soon as they feel the pressure or see the pressure, they're going to head for those spots that are kind of out of sight, out of mind for the hunters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so then, so there's clearly benefit of going early, but there's some consequences, bugs, pressure. Um, but Heat and water also for the human hunter. Finding water in some of the places can be a real challenge earlier on in the year if it's, not, if it's not wet. Yeah. Depends on the year. But you also might get that, you know, you might get 10 days of bluebird, sunshine, Yep. We're strolling around in the alpine meadows. It could be absolutely pristine, which is similar to our hunt this year, um, which is lovely for many, many days. So, yep. um, Okay, let's think about, so there's sort of the mid-season spot, and I know a number of guys like to go around the third week of August, sort of 
uh, a couple of benefits that, that for that is the bugs are better. Uh, the majority of sheep hunting pressure has moved on. Like the majority of guys, a lot of the guided hunts are done. A lot of the dedicated sheep hunters who were there in the first week or two are now done and gone. Maybe they killed a ram or run out of time. And so there's sort of a period there where, you know, I you know I understand the sheep may go back to some of the original feeding patterns, and uh, there's some benefit to that. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've yeah. I guess if you know where they look for them, I think that's true. I mean, the hunters definitely. There's not as many sheep harvested, and there's probably not as much effort in those latter couple of weeks. I don't know how long it takes the rams to respond to that reduced pressure, for them to start moving back to the site ability. So, you know, you'd have to really look at the success rates through those weeks, but I feel like it's still a lower percent success rate uh, as compared to earlier. Um, but the benefit, of course, is that you're going to run into fewer hunters. And so for some people, that's going to be part of the enjoyment of the hunt is, you know, I want to go out and enjoy this country and I don't want to run into a bunch of other people. And so I guess there's two ways to do that. You can pick your time when there's not as many sheep hunters out there or alternatively, you can try to get back farther away from the access points. <laughs> yeah, like work, work harder. Yeah, go earlier, work harder. So yeah, yeah I know where you're leading yeah. here, So, but I think it's still a worthwhile discussion because I'm, I'm hung up on like maybe going later this year. I've, yeah. I've, put, I've gone in on opening day for the last three years and, and for the most part been somewhat pushed around by, by activity. Uh, I've had you know, mediocre hunts and you know I haven't killed rams, so I guess that's part of it, but I haven't actually seen a ton of legal rams going, flying in on, on, on August 1st mm-hmm. where I've had more success kind of just hunting uh, as a byproduct of like uh, what I'm elk hunting, I kill an elk and then I'm done elk hunting and then I spend the rest of the week sheep hunting. Mm-hmm. And I've had probably more success spotting and stocking sheep kind of in the first two weeks of September. So that brings us to our third sort yeah. of possibility. I've, I've also been told that, you know, towards the end of the season, um, the sheep are moving out of their summer ranges down into their winter ranges looking for using lands as they get closer to their mating season and I know there's some interest in hunting kind of closer to the I guess it's October 10th is the yeah I think I think it's on? yeah second week of October now yeah yeah and so that time of year I mean yeah it you know we've hunted through September not into October I have quite a few friends who hunt in October and they they do quite well I mean it's it's a good time of year to be out I think as a sheep hunter um, the trade-off there is it can be miserable cold you know that's like East Kootenays is the same way uh, late in October, I mean, you know, 30 below with the wind howling and, you know, everything that you have that's liquid being frozen is, you know, there's a good likelihood that that's what your hunting trip is going to be yeah, like. Yeah, it's going to be tough to hang out in the alpine, living in your pup tent, then waiting for a sheep to move out of a, you know, move out of a basin onto a ridge and you can actually get to them. Yeah. And you're just going to freeze to death for yeah. a couple yeah. days. Yeah, you're going to spend some time in crampons probably at that time of year. And, you know, that's, it's, it's harder work, but I think there's a lot of, uh, potential benefits for for hanging out at that time of year for sure yeah that's interesting okay so so that, that so then you've got your sort of three your early season mid-season the other one about mid-season i kind of like you know there's there's also the benefit of uh like the elk elk season opens on mm-hmm. august 15th so there's some moose opportunities on august 15th um maybe even caribou opportunities so there's you know if you if you've exhausted your sheep hunt and hadn't had success there's a possibility towards any of your ship maybe trip you maybe you go and harvest yep. an elk or something and yeah 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 so there's always the multi-species and i think a lot of guys go for that right and it, it that just comes back to what do you really want to hunt right that's oh the yeah <laughs> it's a screw up but i mean that's, <laughs> that's a lot of story yeah, yeah that's the challenge is like i think everybody goes well i could take a 
pocket full of tags and I might get a moose and I might get a you know an elk and so I guess for you know if, if you go you just have to have it in your mind what am I up here to hunt if you're on like a mixed species you know hunt then perfect but if if your objective is to hunt sheep I mean I would almost suggest put a sheep t tag in your pocket and hunt sheep Oh, totally. Yeah. And this goes for, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I, I get this question a lot. If people look at the range, they're like, oh, you can hunt moose, elk, sheep, deer, you know, and, and they, and they want to get the laundry list of animals. And, and like, by and large, like there's, there's, there's no good multi, like I, I've never heard of anybody like regularly going and getting a moose and a deer or an elk and a, mm -hmm. something else. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, if you want to, if you want to go hunt elk, go hunt elk, go, go find the yeah. best place you can hunt elk and, and, and plan your hunt accordingly. Yeah. And like, if by chance, you know, some moose wanders through camp on day nine of the moose hunt or of the elk hunt, and you haven't killed an elk yet, but you know, we we've had hunts too where like Jeff and I have been opening day of elk hunting, right? And we we climb out of our we 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 we're camped on the river and we climb up to our first ridge that we like to hunt, and we start bugling, and two bull elk come wander down the ridge, one coming from one way and one coming the other way, and they meet up on the ridge just above us, like 150 yards. And the sun's coming up, kind of backlighting these two these two elk, and they see each other on the ridge, and they start to go for it. They start to have a little tussle, right? So they're like having the full sparring session right on the crest line of the ridge, and they're perfectly silhouetted by the sun in the back. And like, oh man, this is just beautiful, right? This is why we all hunt elk, right? Yeah. So we watch these guys for a while, and uh, they're both five points, so we don't nothing materializes from there. But we hear some more bugling up the valley, so we keep walking up the valley, and we kind of uh, work away a little further up. And we're, and we're kind of rushing up towards where we hear this bugling. And in this meadow, it's like the biggest bull moose I've ever seen in my life. Just standing there broadside, <laughs> like eating some willow, just like chomping away. And like, you know, like, you're, you know, like sometimes you, you see those 10-point regulations and you go, how the hell would you ever tell if a moose is 10-point or not? Or how would you ever pick yeah. out three, a, like a three-point tripod? Like, yeah. This guy had like you know four or five points on each on each uh, on each brow palm and like had all kinds of it was just a massive freaking bull, and we stood there we had like this long discussion as to whether we should shoot this moose or not because we're like well you know like he's prime moose this is like this is September first he's just been feeding on all this gorgeous vegetation this guy is gonna be loaded with fat he's gonna be the tastiest moose ever. And then we're like, wow, okay, how much does he weigh? Like, when he's on the <laughs> ground, he's going to weigh over 1,000 pounds, probably 1,000 pounds of meat, right? And we're like, that's how many pack loads? That's 10 pack loads. It's like a two-hour walk. So we did the math on the pack. And like, and the other day, we're like, you know what? The only thing is, about, like, it'll take us two and a half days to deal with this moose, right? Yeah. That's like, that's two and a half days we don't get to elk hunt. Mm -hmm. And like, that was really the answer of it all. We were just like, all right. Yeah. yeah. But, so we didn't kill him. And then we hunted elk for another... Uh, like nine more days, called in 16 bull elk that year and Whoa. didn't kill a bull elk. Cool. <laughs> it was the best hunt year ever. We were driving home. We were like, Jesus, that was the, that was the best hunt I've ever had in my life. So anyways, that's, that's a little. So yeah, but focus on the species you're going to go for because, um, yeah, you know, because that's, uh, yeah. That's the, yeah, that's the trick. And I mean, that's what the, you know, the, sh the sheep nuts will tell you is if you want to go sheep hunting, then go sheep hunting. Yeah. If you want to go up and you know, take the shotgun approach, then good luck. Wish you the best. Um, but sheep hunting, especially thin horn sheep hunting, you know, big horn sheep hunting in BC is a little bit different. Thin horn sheep hunting is marathon. Like it's, you know, it's not typically, are they here? It's, you know, they're here, you just have to dig them up. And so that means a lot of sitting behind glass and picking country apart. And when that country 
is not showing you sheep, that means putting your backpack on and spending a day to go hit another spot that you've got X'd off on your map. So, you know, that's that's the trick is, is it's a marathon, right? And so you have to be prepared to grind it out. And I think a lot of times if guys have a, a moose tag in their pocket or an elk tag in their pocket, it's like, oh, you know, why don't we just go back to elk hunting or why don't we go hunt, hunt moose and start working our way back to the track and it just it makes life easy and uh, at the same time I think it reduces your chances of, of tracking down 100%. around. And so I have a good I have a buddy that got drawn for the uh, Tashini hunt 30, 30 to 1 draw like you know between 20 and 30 to 1 depending on the year and they ended up shooting a goat yeah. on this trip like why would you shoot a goat? <laughs> this is a once in a lifetime hunt, and yeah. now you're now you're packing a goat. I mean, I don't know what the circumstances were, but yeah, I checked in with him. I was like, oh, "How was your hunt?" He's like, "Oh, we got a nice goat." And I'm like, "Yeah, it doesn't add up to me." Yeah. So, but I mean, granted, maybe they were walking out and they saw yeah. this goat. And yeah. That's great. Well, know, and whatever you want, right? right? Whatever you want, but like, yeah, it is. It's uh, you know, it can be a physical thin horn hunt. It can be a physical grind, and so if you're committed to the grind, then I would, you know. Keep the make it sound so terrible. See, in my mind, when I go sheep hunting, I just like stroll through alpine meadows yeah. all day long, looking at wildlife everywhere I turn, and like, I don't. I mean, it's. I guess it's a. It's a mental marathon of just like covering more. That's it. More yeah. lovely ground, and I mean, the, the hardest part of of sheep, and for me, is gaining access to where you can kind of freely stroll around in the on the ridges in alpine meadows, and you're mm -hmm. kind of pushing up through that difficult sort of willow. Uh, and, and deciduous sort of forest to just get just getting beat on by spruce boughs and shit. That's it. Yeah. Sometimes like that trip that I was showing you where we went up into Spats Easy. Sometimes it's like, okay, we're gonna start with two days of hiking. We know it's gonna take us two days to get in there before we start hunting. And yeah. so you have to be mentally prepared that we're gonna commit to this and we're gonna stick it out no matter what happens. And so, you know, we enjoy it, but I think for a lot of people, especially the first time they go up and they see how big the country is and how far away the mountains are, um, you know, you have to be able to mentally just put it in your mind that I'm going to make it to that mountain and uh, and start, you know, one foot in front of the other. That's, that's all you can do in that case, which is enjoyable once you get into a pace and get to feel comfortable. But I feel like when we take people who are new to it, it's a lot. You know, they look at this country and go, holy smokes, it's beautiful, but it's big, and it feels like it's going to take me forever to get there. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. It takes a while to get your head around it, but it, you get there, and it's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's the special part about sheep, is that you really get to, you look back on I mean, our trip this year was particularly epic with Rick and I, and, and if you were following this podcast, you kind of would have caught a couple of the stories of, of basically hunting in sheepless country, but covering some ground, and it was just, in retrospect, I look at the pictures now, and I'm like, Man, that was a good trip. Like yeah. that was that was really rewarding. Like covering all that ground. So amazing country. All right. So just to summarize our take on when to go sheep hunting, summarize it in one sentence. Uh, Three sentences. Well, I depends on what you want to do. I, I would say if you're going to sheep hunt and you want to be successful, I would say go in. You know, get in before the season and be ready for um, opening day and be hunting hard and. You know, as time goes by, your your hunting experience, as far as seeing hunters, other hunters in competition, will probably, your experience is probably going to go up over time further later on in August because there aren't going to be as many people in the mountains. And then I think probably in September, you're going to catch bunches of rams out again and things moving moving out into open areas. But the trade-off then is cold. So there's always a trade-off. Always a trade-off. Yeah, it just For depends sure. on what you want to do. For sure. Okay, well, that, that's a lot of fun. And I... And, uh, 
yeah, I'm still deciding as to whether or not I'm going to go early or not. But anyways, it'll be fun. To, fun problem to have. So probably the probably the thing that's going to dictate my decision will be like if I could stand not being hunting on August 1st, because that's yeah. really like just like you get you get to add a whole extra month to your hunting season if you start if you start sheep hunting, sheep hunting particularly starting earlier. Um, the other thing that I really liked about that what you just talked about is like you can go sheep hunting on July 25th. Like you, and you might as well. You might as well get in there mm-hmm. and hunt because, like, you only need one day to kill a ram, you need, but you might need ten days to find one. So, mm-hmm. th- so theoretically, you could start on, you know, the twenty third of July uh, of July and start hunting, and, and eventually, if you find a ram somewhere in that week or a couple of rams, then you just hang out there. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and cover country. And I mean, it's a long drive from this part of the world, and you never know what happens. And you certainly don't want to show up three or four days late with a broken vehicle. Or there's a million things that can happen. I think you're better off being prepared and getting in early, and you know, doing your homework instead of being showing up late. Yeah, right on. Okay, that that, that was the teaser. Hopefully, people now have like tuned in. They're stoked about sheep hunting, and we got them hooked up. And now we can talk a little <laughs> bit about resource man. Maybe that was a bad place. I look at the time. Twenty eight minutes. We just talked about sheep hunting, which maybe we should have just done a sheep hunting podcast and given up on this conservation thing. But um, l- let's go through it. And we'll see what we can do in about half an hour, and just um, we'll try and hold it to an hour. Um, so we talked about it in the intro. Like, there's definitely a problem here. We're definitely seeing reduced. Uh, wildlife populations. The one slide that I really liked in your presentation was sort of talking about the increase in um, industrial use mm-hmm. and and the increase in road density. Well, we're having a whole bunch more logging, a whole bunch more industrial development, a whole much more of people living in British Columbia, uh, taking up space and uh, it's leaving a lot less space for wildlife. And meanwhile, this funding and support for wildlife is going down. Mm-hmm. So it's disproportionate that if we're investing in and making money off wildlife, how come we're seeing less investment in right. resource management? So what are your thoughts about that? Uh, I think as British Columbians, I mean, all the numbers are in the presentation. I think as British Columbians, we've just taken all of this for granted. It's really the Coles Notes version is, you know, the generation before us had all these great hunting and fishing opportunities and got to hunt over the counter tags for moose every year and elk hunting opportunities and even in terms of fish and uh, as a result it probably didn't get the attention that it deserved and over time you know healthcare and education and basically everything other than natural resource management got money because everybody else was complaining about the lack of funding and uh, you know we were advocating I think but probably not in a coordinated fashion and not talking to the right people i.e. talking to politicians the people who decide what the budgets are we didn't talk to them. In a lot of cases, we complained to our wildlife biologists and our fisheries biologists about what they were doing. Um, so, you know, everybody cares. It's just a matter of how do we change the trajectory around funding, um, which should change the trajectory around fish and wildlife populations. And so the people that you have to talk to are your elected officials in that case. So I, I like your point about we've had it kind of so good for so long, and I'm probably the last well, you and I are probably the last generation to really experience um, really great hunting in British Columbia and wildlife populations. Like we, I, I think this is what kind of ins- kind of kicked me in the pants to get a hold of you and put on this event to try and gain some awareness and interest in, in, in talking about conservation and, 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 and connecting with the wild community. But like, like I, I've been able to successfully harvest a whitetail every year for the past 
whatever, however long I've been hunting whitetails till I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And and this is the la- like the last three years, I've been like, there's no more places for white-tailed deer to live mm-hmm. where yeah. I hunt. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's this is really happening. Like these, there's just if there's nowhere for them to hunt, there's or th- th- sorry, if there's nowhere for them to live, there's definitely no place for me to hunt them. And and it all with the um, with the removal of sort of winter range where I typically hunt them, which has been removed by logging. Like all of a sudden, that's it. It's over. So, and it took till then for me to kind of really step up and say, hey, I can probably do something here. Like, um, and and taking those steps. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean. Our, my my dad's generation and my grandfather's generation, like if things got bad in one area, they just shifted over to another area sure. to hunt, and because there was somewhere else to explore and somewhere else to hunt. Now there's nowhere else to explore and hunt now. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's like it's there's no more fir trees in the southern half of British Columbia where <laughs> where a deer can live under. Yeah. So where I'm I'm an I like I look for fur. That's all I do. I just sneak around the fir <laughs> trees and I shoot deer, and that's that's my way of hunting. But yeah. I can't do it anymore because there yeah. ain't no fir trees. So, yeah. it, I'm, so I, I think I really, I, I really identify with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in the moving areas, I mean, it's the same on the fishery side, and I think on fish, it's almost that people have moved onto other species, right? You know, sockeye that used to be hyper abundant in the Fraser River, you know, sockeye start to decline, so you don't get openings to fish them, and people switch over to chinook, um, and then they switch over to chinook from chinook to pinks, and so you know, you see this progression over time and you know you see things like spot prawns and stuff that have their price has gone through the roof and it's the same thing i mean you're almost it's almost like you're exhausting one resource that everybody really liked to eat and moving on to other ones as the resource declines so yeah, i think there's parallels in fishery hunting it's a great it's a great word for it too like so y- so you we talked you talk about the steelhead in the um thompson river right mm-hmm. and like i never knew there was steel in the thompson river so like so it doesn't. Well, every time I drive by this Thompson on my way hunting, I don't think about what a shame it is. There's right. No, there's no. There's no. Right? So my baseline for right. Thompson is different than say your baseline or yeah. our, our your parents' baseline that would have hunted it or fished it for years, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. So it was a, it was a UBC Fisheries prof that actually coined it. They call it shifting baselines. So you know you get an avid angler, an avid steelheader who is 50 plus years old. And they knew in the 70s there would be thousands of people on that river. There would be people coming from all over the world to fish. You know, Thompson River steelhead, they're known all over the world globally. And so back then, you know, even in the 80s, some of the reports say they, the population was down by 60%. But back then, you know, they had probably five or 6,000 fish coming back to the Fraser. And they probably had about 3,000 that got to spawn every year, right? Now, you know, this year we're talking about 145 fish a generation of people like we have basically lost an entire run of fish that was known all over the world that i mean spence's bridge the town of spence's bridge is built on thompson steelhead i mean that's why it existed for those decades because everybody wanted to catch a thompson steelhead and so you know we talk about shifting baselines people drive by that river nowadays and they go oh what a beautiful river they don't realize they can't see what's under the water they don't see that there are no fish in the river anymore I think on top of that, um, part of this whole concept of managing to zero comes in. And so when you look at the history around Thompson Steelhead, you know, things started to decline. Um, and so in the 90s, the anglers said, okay, well, nobody's allowed to catch fish and kill them anymore, right? We're going to be strictly catch and release on fisheries only on Thompson Steelhead. Okay, that's fine. You know, didn't do a whole pile around interception or around habitat. 
um, you know, the Nicola River, which is a tributary, it's had chronic low flow issues. You know, we never dealt with that. Um, shortly after catch and release, you know, the fish continued to decline. So now you have the bait fishermen and the gear fishermen and the fly fishermen all fighting with each other, telling each other that they shouldn't be allowed on the river because they're killing too many fish. And as they argued about who should catch, cast and catch what kind of fish, how, uh, the fish continued to decline. And then finally, a few years ago, they shut it down. They got down to, I think their minimum threshold was 1,000 for a fishery, and they shut it down. So, you know, over a generation of people, we basically squandered this run of steelhead. And while it declined, everybody just fought over what kind of fishing regulations they had on the river, and nobody worried about the big picture. Yeah, and meanwhile, the developers who want to build the golf courses and the condos are like, just let them keep fighting let th- and let them just keep forgetting yep. and not noticing there's a population here. And as soon as, they, as, soon as, we re- as, soon as it's completely forgotten there was ever steelhead here, then no one's going to say no to them taking out an extra... 800, you know, liters an hour so they can run their golf course or run their development. It's just, yep. we, it's the sooner we forget about these resources and stop advocating for them, then it makes it easier for folks who want to make money at the expense of wildlife and, and, uh, and habitat can go ahead and do what they want to do. And I'm a little yep. afraid of that's happening in, in Georgia Strait right now with, 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 our, with our salmon habitat and the tributary creeks to, to our larger stem, our larger rivers as well as like up and down the coast where the I mean, used to be, but I, I remember the '90s when the coho crashed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I grew up and like I remember like being in Cedar Cove and with my dad when I was like eight years old, and we would like putter, we'd, we'd buy like uh, a couple dozen live herring from the Cedar Cove Marina, and we'd put out of Cedar Cove, and you'd like you could just see from like you could see backs of blueback coho from the mouth of Cedar Cove off the Epson Point. All the way to Texas, like just breaking the water on a calm day, like you just everywhere you went, there's and you just flip over your herring and, and you get your four coho, and if you're on a tide and you know on on the bite, you get four in no time, and it was it was incredible. It was a, it was an amazing fishery, and that just disappeared. And we never really we was a lot of talk about it amongst the fishing community, like the commercial guys blame the sporties and the sport guys blame the commercial guys, and. Yep. Nobody just said like nobody turned around and said hey we should just stop logging <laughs> or like yeah. or be more mindful of how we log so we're we're not totally nuke like we're not removing all of the spawning habitat for for goho we just we were busy we were busy fighting each other and mm-hmm. and uh, and before you, and, and and the worst part too is that people think it's like one year they're like oh well it's just one bad year and then it'll be better next year and then before you know it you're waiting for the next year and then the next year and then the next year. Like, and it doesn't happen. And we're in that cycle now with the Fraser. People are like, well, maybe next year will be a good a good year for the sockeye. Well, it's been a couple of years now. We haven't had a good year. And and we just had our first really terrible year on the West Coast for salmon. There was no salmon on the West Coast. So I'm curious if there's going to be salmon next year. Mm-hmm. I think there might not be. It'll be yeah. really interesting to see if this is a, is that a one-off, you know, ocean survival deal. But... Yeah, no, I, so and I think under, you know, the, the learning around the coho piece too is, and the steelhead piece and the mule deer and the moose is, you know, you don't need to know what the answers are to advocate, right? Because we all think that we know the answers or we all point the finger and it's this guy or it's that guy. I mean, we all just have to have it in our minds that you need money to be able to um, understand what's happening with fish and wildlife. Right? You need science to know what's killing it or what's not allowing it to grow. 
to get money, you have to tackle politicians. You know, your regional biologist isn't going to be able to come up with fifty million dollars to deal with fish and wildlife problems. So let's go there first before we go okay. to what the, the kind of the solution is. Like, and I think one of the misconceptions, and certainly on my part, is like, you know, so when I was in at my whitetail spot this year, and I was like, God, they're nuking all the trees. Like, God, there's nowhere left for these critters to live. My first reaction is like. I got to call up my buddy Craig and say, Craig, what the hell's going on here? Why the hell are they nucleating my favorite spot? Mm-hmm. And I call him up, and his response is, yeah, it sucks, hey? He's like, and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, it sucks. Um, but he's, and you know, the, the reality is that he's a biologist. Mm-hmm. He works for the Ministry of Environment. He's dedicated his career to do whatever he can to help fish and wildlife in British Columbia, well, particularly wildlife, he's a wildlife biologist. But there's really nothing... He doesn't have any tools necessarily available to him to solve this problem. So right. may, maybe walk through with me what the role of a wildlife biologist in, the, in British Columbia, the reality of which. Is okay. Yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about what everybody thinks a wildlife biologist does, maybe, and what wildlife biologists in the rest of North America do. You know, they have research programs. They monitor wildlife. So they go out and count it. Um, they set harvest targets and they set population objectives. So the science around managing wildlife involves taking care of habitat, managing roads. Um, in some cases, it includes managing predators when we have mountain caribou issues. Uh, it includes managing unregulated harvest. So that would be poaching, uh, First Nations harvest, accounting for all these factors that have an impact on wildlife. Or like railway kill, uh, yeah. highway mortality, railway, railway mortality. Railway kills, um, yeah. disease in plants, uh, logging loss of winter range, bottlenecks around migrations. You know, in the States, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on wildlife overpasses and underpasses. You know, we're spending a lot in Vancouver for people, but not a lot for wildlife in the rest of the province. Um, so that's what, that's what you know, that's what you think of as wildlife management, is that we look at this ecosystem or this patch of ground, we say, here's what we want it to look like, here's how many mule deer we want, here are the bottlenecks, so here's how we're going to turn it around. So you're looking at the whole landscape, thinking about how can these critters survive given all of these challenging factors, highways, logging, mining, resorts, golf courses, how do they all affect these wildlife populations and what can we collectively do to make sure that we still have a handful, well, we still have a healthy population of mule deer or moose or whatever that can still survive here. Right. And so that's what they do in, you know, most of the rest of North America and what our wildlife biologists can do in B.C., is they can go out and monitor, so they can do counts. Yeah. Um, in a lot of cases, they're so poorly funded that they don't, because we don't have the money, and in some cases, we haven't even developed a model to monitor wildlife populations of some species, because we just have never had the money. Um, well, so there's also maybe, in our going back to that whole concept, that like we just never really know, we never, we just, if there was no more mule deer in this one particular valley, we moved to the next valley as hunters, we shifted our focus as hunters, we shifted our focus as biologists, like we just, thought that those populations would come back eventually if we just left them. We just never thought yeah. that we really needed to manage these things, I guess. Yeah, that could be. I, I feel like the branch has been waving the flag. But but anyway, so that's they can monitor. They can go out and count stuff, which costs money. But it doesn't help bring things back. The other thing they can do is they can set hunting and fishing regulations. Those are the two things they can do. They have no impact on logging practices. They have no impact on mining. They have very little ability to manage access because that goes up to a statutory decision maker that's well above them. So the things that you have 
you know, the tools at your disposal to restore and conserve fish and wildlife populations, the tools that you should have as fish and wildlife managers, they don't have those tools. So for example, so if biologist Joe says, you know, sees a forest development plan, like so in British they Columbia. They don't see those. They don't, there's no referral process mm -hmm. for our ministry biologists to get from logging because that's done through the Forest and Range Practices Act and that they don't see those. They don't get referrals. Our, our wildlife biologists do not get referrals. So even if, so okay, that's, that's the, I, I kind of get that. It's similar in my world as well. So even if someone, even if you get your hands on it and you're like, hey, this is, there is, uh, there's, looks like you're gonna, there's plans to log what is what I think critical winter range for sheep, goat, moose, or deer. That the biologist can't step forward and say, "Hey, let, let's have a meeting with these logging these loggers and say, hey, can you could you log here instead of here or not here instead of there or have the road access down here instead of over there?" That that dialogue doesn't necessarily happen right now because there's no the biologist has no ability to have that conversation or authority to change things. There's no they have no mechanism to say you have to put your road over here because you're impacting these these values. Right, so th so they have no authority. That's right. Um, they don't see referrals. That's correct. So so really, they've already been cut out of the process. But there are times when they will catch something and they want to have their voice heard. They still don't have the authority to do it. So they can say, "Can you please do this?" And the licensee can say yes or no. And uh, you know, typically in that world, if it costs money, um, they're going to say no. Right, because you know, if you're licensee X and licensee Y is right beside you, why would you spend money out of your pocket to do things that go above and beyond the forest practices, you know, the Forest and Range Practices Act, the law? Yeah. Why would you spend money to do that when you know your neighbor's not going to do that? Exactly. So, this, so yeah. the system is not set up to reflect wildlife values. The system is set up to give, you know, natural resource extraction, i.e., forestry mining, certainty in a way that they're their law, the law is dictated to them. They have a way to follow it. And so, so the wildlife biologists don't, they don't have control over that stuff. No, and I think that's, that, that was one of the misses we had in our presentation. I think just giving people the perspective that, yeah, like, well, that there's a lot of good work they do. And I think, I think in, 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 in saying this, we should just go to a case example, something that we, you know, a positive story about wildlife bio, biologists at work, but, but by and large, they don't have as much influence as we'd like to think. Like so, so writing your local biologist saying, "Hey, there there isn't enough mule deer on the landscape, or I didn't shoot a moose last five years. What's going on? Fix the problem." Like, it you're you're asking the wildlife biologist to to explain something that they don't have control over because it's right. a larger landscape issue that's happening, and they don't have the mechanisms and tools. So you're really not just by pointing out the lack of wildlife to the biologist doesn't you're not. He, there's not much he or she can really do about it. Right. So there's maybe not the most, your effort is a little bit misplaced there, and I think we're going to go there next. But before we do, I just think it's, you know, there are there are some good news stories about you know, the work that our biologists do in British Columbia, and I think that, you know, a great example is the work that Daryl Reynolds and his team have done on the Sunshine Coast where mm -hmm. they've basically captured, they've trapped elk from a healthy population of elk and then moved them to areas of, throughout the lower mainland where there's been a, uh, where they've, they've been extirpated or uh, have gone extinct, if I guess is a better word. If it, and, and they've taken those, they basically trap these elk, load them onto trucks, put them onto ferries, put them onto landing crafts, and then and basically 
translocated them to these remote river valleys, like well, the Squamish, the, um, the Indian River, the Pit, and and all the way up the up the Hamakto and up the uh, up the Sunshine Coast. But they've restored these populations of elk um, throughout the coast. But they've done this like with with partnership groups, with uh, mm -hmm. volunteer groups, and outside funding sources like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Habitat Conservation Trust Fund. So it's all been the funding's been raised through other alternative sources and the partnerships and the volunteerism and the dedicated biologists have found ways to reestablish these populations, but it's, um, they had to go extinct before we were able to get the momentum and support to do these projects, right? So yeah, and that, and that, yeah, and that hasn't come without its controversy too, right? I mean, that's, you know, um, logging in that case is, has been very vocal about loss of saplings due to Roosevelt elk and there have been a number of discussions around um, the effect of elk on logging and, and again that's where you know the advocates i.e. First Nations and the stakeholders so the BCWF and the guides in the area have, have said no this is not you know this is not okay our objective for elk is this and you know you're not going to get your way to change it so again, you know, the wildlife biologists were able to facilitate the translocation and the reintroduction, but at the same time, we're still running into these issues around regulations and laws related to forestry. So you know, there's been there have definitely been some some hard hard discussions on that file. Yeah, for but sure. But definitely, I think where we'll get to and where we're going to talk about here is how how do we advocate? Mm -hmm. I think, y and you nailed it. I mean, the reason why it's been successful is because the 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 wildlife biologists in this case have 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 brought together the the first nation governments mm. the stakeholders the guides and the volunteer groups and and created a collective voice from all with different backgrounds to advocate for this one wildlife issue mm -hmm. and they found the funders and they built that community and um, and that's where it's been a success mm -hmm. absolutely and that's where we've run into problems in our own community of hunters is that we've been we, we tend to argue about what's wrong instead of getting getting behind one solution and championing it so sure. so we're wh why don't we move to that like what what are what is some of the solution like what is what is we talked about the message but let, let share the message with me and what you think the solution could be for us to move ahead with advocating for wildlife okay uh really quickly because i guess they're going to hear the other podcast but we think that bc needs a new um, fish and wildlife management model. So under that, so the three pillars of natural resource management, doesn't matter if it's water, air, or forestry, you need three things. You need funding, so you need money, and you need science, so you can make informed decisions. Under that, you need social support, so you need a network of people of diverse interests who sit at a table and make decisions and advocate for the resource. So what we've said in this case is under the funding part, the money is that everyone who makes a rent, so everyone who takes something off of the land, profits from it or benefits from it, should be paying into it. So that includes hunters, anglers, um, viewers, ecotourism, logging, mining, everybody should be paying into conserving wildlife, fish in British Columbia. Um, once you get the money, uh, typically you're better off parking it outside of government than inside of government. The reason for that is when you move money outside of government, you can leverage it. So when you look at conservation organizations like Ducks Unlimited, Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, they typically take a dollar and turn it into four, at least, you know, 
Nature Trust VC were talking about that, they leverage it into like $200 sometimes. Um, and the reason that they're able to do that is because that they're trusted. You know, typically um, outside of government agencies don't give government money because often if you give government a dollar, they're not going to give you four back. They're probably going to give you four cents back. It's hey, not their. It's not their. Bu- <laughs> it's not their business. It's not their business to multiply money. It's just not. It's just not in the way they're they're set up. So that's the money bit. Under that, you have the science bit. So the science. This is where we have. Um, we set up what we want the landscape to look like. So you know, what do you want BC to look like? Um, where are the thresholds for wildlife populations? For example, we know that grizzly bears are heavily impacted by road densities. Anything that exceeds 0.6 kilometers, so 600 meters of road per square kilometer of habitat. We know that at that threshold, grizzly bears' use of those areas starts to decline. And we know that that's a pretty good metric for most large mammals, is once you cross a threshold of 0.6 kilometers per square kilometer, they start avoiding those areas. So under the science, you're going to say, this is what we want the landscape to look like. This is our objective for Thompson Steelhead, for moose, for mule deer, for grizzly bears, for wolves. So then you have a measurable outcome, right? So you come out and say, we want to have like two moose per square kilometer. Yep, whatever it is. Yeah. Currently, we have no objective for that stuff. We have no plan to say there should be a thousand fish in the Thompson. And when you don't have uh, a goal, it's really easy not to meet your goal. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So and it's easy to forget about the thousand fish that could have been, would have been, was. In yep, the, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So that's the science bit. And then under that, what we've said is we'd also like to see um, some chairs at academics institutions around the fish and wildlife piece. And the reason for that is it's really great to have academics on your side because they're extremely smart. Um, typically, they don't get involved in politics, so you can separate church and state in the sense that science is removed from the political world, which we know can really be hard on science. Um, and you have these people that are extremely brilliant, and you say, go out and f- tell us what the bottlenecks are for steelhead restoration in the Thompson. And you're going to pay them as a public servant, not nearly as much as they should be getting. And they're going to have these students who are extremely brilliant, and they get paid even less. So the other thing with people who work at universities is they do it because they're intrinsically motivated, typically. They do it because they care about fish and wildlife. And so you know, you're giving a person money who wants to find the answers to these questions, who has um, ex- you know, access to unbelievably intelligent people. So that's the science bit, right? Set objectives, you fund it. So, so you, you look to the academic community to help set the objectives. Right. So you're separating from government a little bit because you, yep. you can't set objectives inside of government because of the politics of just the nature of the competing uses and yep. that having an outside third party say, hey, we it's this is a reasonable threshold. This is a reasonable number. Yep. Right. Yeah. And you yeah. And I mean, this whole concept of removing science from politics is certainly emerging. I mean, other, some places are better than others. We saw, you know, recently stuff around grizzly bears, but it's not restricted. I mean, we've seen it with Thompson Steelhead. We already know that there's a huge issue with bycatch of Thompson Steelhead coming up in the river, but because it's politically a sensitive topic, nobody really does anything about it. So that's why you separate science from politics. So that's the science piece. You just say, what do we want this landscape to look like? How do we do it? You know, you let the scientists give you the answers and the social support is you build a round table of the people who are paying, who are in- have an interest in wildlife, and then you figure out how to get to those places. How do we adjust practices? How do we adjust? And who knows what the outcome is? I don't know what 
that science is going to say, but maybe we have to adjust hunting. Maybe we have to adjust logging. Maybe we have to adjust how we manage roads. Who knows? Everybody's going to have their favorite pet peeve, but hopefully the scientists give us the answers and they say, here's how you need to adjust to accommodate fish and wildlife on the landscape. Okay, and so, so that's it. So, so the money piece is just saying, hey, we like we need to find a way to invest more money into wildlife management, and you guys, and and, and it's people who have a vested interest in either you know using the resource or caring about it. They're the ones that we want to pay because then they're going to be attached to it and they're going to take care of it over the long run. Just getting money from government doesn't really doesn't do that for you. No, no. So, so my only thought is like, you know, how do we, how do you like so does that just put, I mean, so, so what? So say we all team up with the ecotourists and the First Nation governments and the, um, well, the hunters. Industry. And industry. Well, it, this is the problem is we're, we're going to team up and we establish our threshold, thresholds. With the, sorry, team up with the academic community. We establish our threshold, thresholds. We're like, this is where we want to get to in terms of our wildlife. But we're still, aren't we still pitted against, like, kind of. Not if the objectives are already set up. Right? So if you agree on the objectives and the vision, then the rest of it is going to fall into place. And, and so what happens in these this social support, the concept of a round table is you set the round table up so that there isn't anybody at the table who has veto, right? So that there's no power asymmetry. And so if you have bad actors at the table, they will weed themselves out over time because they will be constantly doing things that are inconsistent with the vision and the mission of this approach. Right? So if everybody sits down and says, we want healthy, abundant fish and wildlife populations on the landscape, and here's our values and here's our objectives, and you have one bad actor at the table who keeps voting against sustainability-related projects, pretty soon, in the public eye, they're going to they're gonna pull their own the, the chair out from their own bum, and they're going to hit the floor. So, so far she's at the table, though, and they keep saying, we're going to continue to log every last stick on the landscape, and we don't care about these other values. Aren't we still? Don't we need the support of government to create policy to say, you must, thou shalt, not log the last right fir tree on the landscape. Well, and that's where the roundtable is. If it's set up properly, they will get on board. And so the economic side is a whole another piece. And part of this kind of process is you're going to have to work through the economics. You can't just say, well, guess what? You guys are all out of business. That's not yeah, the way exactly. it works. But the, exactly. you know, the job of science is is to help you innovate and move through these problems. So. You know, if you have it in your mind that it's an adversarial approach, then the outcome will be adversarial. But if you have it in your mind that here, this is what, how we want BC to look, we might all have to take some pain in this, then chances are we're all going to take some pain. But if you show up at this table and you say, well, I want to knock the legs out of this guy and this guy, then, yeah, you're going to struggle, right? Yeah. And this is where this is why we act, why I wanted to follow up and have this conversation because there's this a much more in-depth discussion that we can have. And I think the other... The part that I really wanted to share with with the community is just that, like, you don't have to be an expert in how these systems could work. You don't have to be an expert in how what the solutions are. It it's it's really about telling. Well, I'll leave it to you. What so we don't have to know how to solve the problem, but how do we get the how do we get how do we get started? Right. How do we get started? So so hopefully, I mean, what's clear is that the people who control the outcome, i.e. the dollars, and the ability to set objectives. I mean, at the end of the day, the political process is going to have to say, yes, this is important to British Columbians. Yes, we have to do that. So, you know, don't 
send a snotogram to your local biologist because they aren't going to be able to fix your problem. A snotogram? Yeah. Snotogram, <laughs> hate mail, yeah, you name yeah, it, yeah. right? Uh, so you're going to have to meet with your elected officials. You need to meet with your MLA who deals with provincial, they deal with wildlife, and your MP deals with, you know, fish stuff and transboundary issues around migratory waterfowl and species at risk like caribou. So you have to meet with your elected officials. You do it once a quarter. It's going to be a half-hour meeting. So it's an hour every three months. It's four hours a year. That's all it takes. And you don't have to know the solutions because your politicians, they're everyday people. They aren't going to know shit about fish and wildlife. They won't know what the solutions are either. So all you have to sit down and convey to them is, first of all, here's who I am. Here's what I care about. I care deeply about fish and wildlife. I'm concerned that my kids are not going to be able to see this or access it or use it. I want you to help us fix it. That's what they have to get. They have to get that A, here's who I am. B, I really care about this. C, it's disappearing and future Canadians and British Columbians won't get access to it and I need you to fix it. And here's how you need to fix it. You need to give it money and you need to set objectives for it. That's it. That's all you have to convey. You need to give it money. So this is a, one of the things that I got out of like, so I manage parks for a living. We've had a relatively good run in the last year. We've actually been seeing about a 20 or 30% increase in resources in my little world, right? But, you know, if you want better park management, you don't have to tell me how to do be a better park manager. Mm -hmm. If you give me 30% more resources, you're going to get 50% more delivery of park resources on the landscape. Mm -hmm. So, and so if you're out in the, if you're out in the lower mainland, you're going to see more park rangers, you're going to see more uh, tent pads, you're going to see more things in the backcountry that are, that I, that I'm a professional park manager. I've got a long list of things that I would love to have invested over the last 10 years. I know how to do this, right? Mm -hmm. So if you just give me money and support and tell me to go do my job, mm -hmm. I'm going to go find solutions and do it, right? I'm, that's, that's my job. So if we can get to a point where our politicians are saying to our wildlife biologists to say, how can we solve these problems? Mm -hmm. And here's the money to solve them. It's the wildlife biologists and it's the community of academics and it's the, and it's the groups like BCWF and others that are working together that, that have the solutions and that can implement them. It just, we don't have to know the solution. We don't have nope. to get into that. We just have to say, I mean, what the, the power that, that, that we have as individuals is that, we vote for these people and we tell them what's important to us mm -hmm. and sitting down and saying, Hey, this is important to us. It's, it, we haven't been doing a good job managing for it. It's disappearing. My, you know, my lifestyle, my, I, I rely on this for my sustenance as a human being mm -hmm. and it's, and it's disappearing and it's disappearing as a result of X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, let's do a better job managing it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I truly think that that, that will motivate the, po the political world and, and other folks educate people around them as well to, Take action. Yep. Yeah, you know, when we talk about things like the Thompson Steelhead, when you explain what's gone on to politicians, they are, they get it. Like, they will say to you, I do not want to see these things disappear on my watch. That's what they'll say. I mean, they're human beings. It's not that politicians are these nasty people or these highly educated people that are looking for confrontations. Most of them are everyday people that came from everyday jobs who decided to represent you, their constituent. And so, yeah, you absolutely don't need to talk about hunting regulations or that the season should be closed three days earlier. You need to say, this resource is in trouble. We need to recover it. It's extremely important to me. 
this is something, and if you can go as far as saying this is something that I'll vote on, you will get their attention really quickly, because strategically, politicians care about two things. And it's not to be mean to politicians, they care about money and votes. And if they think that you will vote on sustainability issues, then you will get sustainability in platforms. Yeah, absolutely. So so I think we're, we're getting kind of close to where I kind of wanted to get to on this, and we're getting past an hour here, just, just over now. So the, the other thing that I, I really think we do a shitty job as, as hunters, is that we don't do a very good job of reaching out to other people who care about fish and wildlife. And we don't build relationships with those people. And for example, like you could walk up to anybody on the streets of Vancouver and say, is it important to you that there's grizzly bears in the wilderness? And everybody will say, well, absolutely it's important to me. You could say the same thing. Is it important to you that there's moose living in northern British Columbia? Any part of British Columbia. Absolutely it's important to me. And everybody loves wildlife, right? And so it should be important to the politicians that everybody cares about that. The, the, the missing gap is that people don't know that moose are disappearing mm -hmm. and that grizzly bears have had a, you know, a tough run due to road density mm -hmm. and that, all the, that these problems that we have are as a result of people, people, right? <laughs> yeah. And that their, their populations are diminishing yeah. and that they're under threat. Mm -hmm. and, and some people have done a good job of bringing forward the case of the plight of the grizzly bears. The, 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 the community of Raincoast folks have really illustrated, you know, that grizzly bears may be vulnerable and, and the result has been to cancel the hunting of grizzly bears. And that's that's one story that but it's made its way into the public view and they and they've and they've done a good job of that. Yep. And whereas as you know, as as hunters, we just gotta do a better job of advocating for all the other critters that are out there. And hopefully we can even partner with the groups that are advocating for the health of grizzly bears yep. and not necessarily be infighting constantly with the different communities, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you have, so as a hunter angler, I mean, you have different people who um, you communicate with or interact with. You have your own people, right? So I call that the echo chamber. And then you have anti-hunters, and you have the public, and you have politicians. Anti-hunters, unless you know them personally, you probably aren't going to convince them of anything. So don't try. Don't engage them online. Don't go onto their Facebook or onto their website and try to beat them up because it's a waste of your time. If you have disposable time, also don't talk to your echo chamber. Don't don't tell hunters how great hunters are. Because so this is that this is when you. I, I've recently started following. There's a BC hunting Facebook feed. Yeah. And I'm, it's amazing how many. There's a, maybe a ten thousand or thirty thousand followers, and they're they just uh, there's a lot of posting of successful harvests and, and a lot of questions around. There's a lot of questions for new hunters there that say, hey, what gun should I buy, whatever. But mm -hmm. but when there is an issue, like when somebody, when there is like a, what was the last one I saw there? There was... Um, tackling the CO service? Oh, the tackling the CO service, yeah. yeah. There was just, just lots of people sharing their opinions within that group of 30,000 Facebook followers right. as to what they thought about um, the perspectives brought forward in this article. And which is, which is fine and all, but those 30,000 people are already, yep. like they're already hunters. They're already gonna advocate for wildlife, we think, we hope. But, but it's, it's, it's a waste of your breath. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no, like you're, not, you're not actually having an influence on greater society or on the success of fish and wildlife. And you need to get, there's, there's another like, you know, three and a half million people in, in British Columbia that we do need to be communicating with. That's right. And, and talking about you know why the CO service is important and what the values are and why they have to shoot bears on occasion, mm -hmm. like it's more important that we're talking to those folks. Right. Uh, and so the public, when you look at the numbers, I mean the majority of the public, you know, 
most of them have probably tried fishing at some point. You know, that's 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 changing in terms of demographics in Lower Main, like in you know the way our our province is is being made up. But most of them probably fish. Most of them know someone who hunts, um, and a lot of them would actually try hunting or fishing if they had the chance. So those are the people that you need to talk to. Is the seventy percent of people who are probably hunting or fishing curious, um, but are also reading a whole bunch of negative stories about what hunters do and what conservation officers do. So the public or the people that you have to talk to and convince. And as hunters, you know, there's one hundred and ten thousand of us that buy licenses. There's probably two hundred and fifty thousand people who hunt every other year, once every five years. You know, so in your network, you're going to have a few hundred people. You're going to have your friends, your family. You're going to have customers, clients co-workers that you run into all the time so those are the people that you should be trying to convince of what you do because you already know that they're friendly and they're in your space and they're in your network and they probably like you so those are the people that you need to convince and also it's not going to hurt hunters or hunting to pick up a pen and write down what you do and why and put it on your social media and when you have a hunting trip or a fishing trip don't put a picture of a dead moose as your one picture of your hunting trip Put all the pictures of your hunting trip. Talk about the planning. Talk about the fun you had. Talk about the wrecks you had. Show the landscapes that you right. hung out and the, the sunrises and the sunsets and, exactly. and the great meals you had and like exactly the yep. flat tire and stuck in a ditch. Everything. And, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. non-hunters, non-hunters don't get a kill picture. They don't understand what goes into it. So you know you're gonna lose that battle. So tell the story of hunting. Tell your story. And then talk about on your social media why you care about fish and wildlife, because that's also a big disconnect. You know, you hear this from people who don't hunt. You tell me you care about something, how can you kill it? Right? So we have to help them understand why we care about something that we actually hunt. And so that's the public piece. And the last one is the politician piece, and we already talked about that. You need to meet with them and explain who you are and what you do and why. And they'll get it. If you speak from the heart, don't make something up. Right? The best thing I think people can do is sit down, take out a pad of paper, and think to themselves, why do I hunt and fish? Write it down so that it makes sense to you first, because it's really hard to communicate, because as a hunter or an angler, this is actually part of your evolution and your ecology. Like, it's actually instilled in you to hunt and fish, so sometimes it's hard to communicate that out. So I think if you write it down so you better understand it, you talk to the public, you talk to people on your social media who are non-hunters, you write non-hunter-friendly stories, non-angler friendly stories me with your MLAs then we will see the tide change I still haven't figured out a way to adequately describe that like my primal motivation to be a hunter like I, it's a difficult thing to describe like why is it that I'm so motivated to be a hunter and I think about it year round and get so much out of it like because because before we had cars and all that stuff you would have starved to death well I know okay, 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 okay. <laughs> you're being really civil but like how, how do you just like that passion for like that drives me every day to be you know just be so, so people get it I, I think you know we've taken non-hunters and even people who weren't supportive of hunting out hunting with us and by the end of it I've never had anybody who let who left and said I never want to do that again oh, like no. a lot of times like I, I want to try hunting so you know people everyone has it in them it's just a matter of us portraying in a way that isn't, you know, a lot of hunters really get their backs up when somebody, you know, we have friends on social media. Somebody says something who's their friend who that's, you know, an off, you know, what we would consider an off-color remark about hunting. You know, I can't believe you hunt goats or I can't believe you hunt grizzly bears or whatever. Hunters usually fire back the first shot. Well, then you must be a leaf-licking greenie, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, what, you know, if this person's your friend, why don't you take a minute to explain to them why you do this? 
instead of just firing back. And, you know, that's what we saw in the media around that CO story too. You know, there's 300 comments about how the reporter and the CO didn't know what they were doing and they were this and that. You know, I would change the narrative and say, this is who COs are. This is why they're important. This is what they care about. Instead of telling everybody else in the world that they're all just idiots, try to explain it to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like there's, there's so, there's so, there's such a great, uh, and and Rob Chipman stood up at our event there as one of the closing remarks. Said, you know, we got a great story to tell, and we got to tell it. We just got to figure out a way to tell it. And that's another thing I, you know, I talk about with my community at Wild at our at our hunting courses. It's like figuring out like a really palatable way to talk about hunting that people can be included in it mm -hmm. and want to hear more about it and feel comfortable being around the community of hunters mm -hmm. and and so what are those i mean I, I you know avoiding the trigger points i mean avoiding pictures of dead animals mm -hmm. like that's number one i mean you just can't hold that it just it's just too complicated for somebody to process holding up a dead animal with blood with the tongue hanging out and blood yeah. coming out of his nose i think if it's part of a story I think if it's part of a story, I think people will get that. They'll understand what goes into it. But I think that the non-hunters, they just don't understand what goes into a hunting trip. So if you explain it to them, I feel like the picture of a dead animal, as long as it's respectful, is not going to be a big issue, right? Because it's like, I mean, you, you know, you put pictures of a two-year-old kid ha holding up a fish and everybody thinks it's the greatest thing ever, right? Absolutely. So, so there's shades of gray and all this, but, and part of, this too is this you know showing pictures of butchering an animal and stuff because people don't really see that and they don't yep. understand it so that shows your appreciation for the animal it's like i got this i'm gonna process it myself i have this respect for the animal and for the meat and blah 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 blah, blah. and when we go home you know you know you see this in kids kids go out and catch their first fish they eat it all you know the kid that's the fussiest eater ever that won't eat half of their dinner on a normal night they will eat a fish because they caught it so yep. there's more respect yep. there so if you convey that respect i feel like if you have one picture of a dead animal, people then will learn to appreciate that. It's like antlers at your house. If people know what goes into this and what you feel and what you experience and why you do it, then they're probably okay with the antlers on your wall. If they walk into your house and you tell them about how, you know, you're the greatest hunter ever and it was the biggest buck on the mountain, they're probably not going to appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree. So, yeah, I, I mean, I just, it's a difficult one for people to understand the dominance over an animal when you're sitting on top of it. Yep, that too. Like yeah. that, yeah. It's disrespectful. Yep. It's disrespectful. Even though it, it, you're, you're celebrating, or you're celebrating, or even you're just recognizing a moment that a lot of, all that effort and work of the trip culminated in this moment of when the, you've take, taken this animal and you're trying to capture that moment, mm -hmm. and the logical way to capture it is with you sitting with this animal. And, 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 and it's, I mean, we call them dead meat pictures in, in, in our community. And, and, uh, and of course, we've all done it and we all do it. And I just, uh, you know, I question whether or not, you know, the value in, in capturing that image, is it worth the the challenge for everybody else that might see it down mm -hmm. the road, right? Is it, yeah. is it really worth the benefit? Well, and that's where I think, I, I do think, I think if a non-hunter just sees that picture, then they yeah. see you as like, you know, this macho or male bragging. But if you tell your story about what went into that animal, I feel like they will appreciate it and understand it. And, you know, I'm only sp speaking from our experience, but, you know, Chelsea, my wife and I, in our network, we've never had anybody say, you know, I can't believe you put a picture of a dead animal on your social media. And we have all kinds of non-hunting friends. They, it's, not a, it's not an issue inside of our network um, of non-hunting friends. And I feel like that's part of it is because you know, a lot of times our friends understand how and why we hunt and what we do with it and that sort of thing. So, 
So I think there is space to show pictures of dead animals. I think it's in how you tell the story. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and I think that's really where we need to get to is just telling the whole story mm-hmm. and finding those opportunities to share with people. And, and it, doesn't yeah. have to be th- it doesn't have to be everything at once. Mm-hmm. I mean, a great place to start with anybody is to, is to share wild game right. with people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I take every opportunity to host dinner parties, to share meals with my, my colleagues and my friends. And, like, you it's know, we're, we're, we're here tonight. I mean, like, I'm asking you to come over to my house to do a podcast. I mean, I'm cooking dinner for you because that's – that's just my traditional way within yeah. my family. We share, we share, we share food, right? And and I think if you do that, you just build so many relationships. And I, I was like that. I, saw, I had a sausage party uh, for my birthday on the on the fourth. It was kind of funny. It was uh, so it there was twelve women there and four guys. Mm-hmm. And and um, how my sausage party has always worked is that the successful hunters in my community come over and they bring over a bunch of game and then all my you know, broke-ass hippie friend, musician friends and people who work in NGOs show up and they like grind meat and stuff sausages and they earn their share of sausage and, my, yeah. and then the, and the hunters get a bunch of their meat processed in exchange. So it's this great way to, and it's just a great party. Like you drink a bunch of wine, have mm-hmm. a couple of beers, listen to some music. And so we're doing that. But this year it was cool because um, all the women had killed stuff this year <laughs> and all the guys like were unsuccessful. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but anyways, but, but, you know, the place where I was looking around that room, I was like, there was, you know, six women that had, that had harvested animals that year, this year, and all of them started from a place where um, they were either vegetarian um, or they were they were definitely, they were non-hunters mm-hmm. in the last six years. That's awesome. Like, it was really cool. And, yeah. and you know, they all had you know, a deep passion and love for wildlife, but they've taken different steps, and now they're here. And, and I'm looking at this party going, and, and so two of the women that showed up just to grind and hang out both just signed up for my... Uh, Perfect. For my core class and my pal class this month. Perfect. Yeah. So like, That's I mean, awesome. it's just absolute. And so not only for these two women, I mean, like, obviously, like, the meat, the sausages were great, but I also have to think that the community of women that they're hanging out with, they're going, shit, man, these yep. women are these these women kick yeah. ass, like, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's their that mentorship, that role, those role models, but also just direct connection between food processing community going home with a pile of sausage and then just the light went on like hey like i can do this too and yeah. i'm gonna be part of this community and that yeah. to me is the like a really it's really huge. accessible way to get involved it's huge and then the network the way that flows it's like a spider web right if you have one person and you reach into someone else's network and then that message flows through i mean you, you have the ability to impact thousands of people like within you know within one workshop i mean that's you know it's absolutely tremendous i think that's uh, what you're doing is awesome especially in this part of the world the world and getting this different demographic and you know female participation is increasing in hunting i mean it's just phenomenal and then the sharing bit is huge i mean it's like you know it's the analogy is you have a neighbor that grows a garden in the summertime typically they are proud of what they grow so they're going to come over and they're going to be like hey do you want some of these tomatoes that i grew you never have someone show up in the dead of winter and go, hey, do you want the bananas that I bought? They came from South America. Do you want to have a few of these? Yeah, totally. So, so that's part of our, that's part of like our evolution and our, and our, you know, the way we interact with each other. It's like, hey, I put all this effort into this. You know, I have a huge respect for wildlife and I want to share that with you. And for people, they, they get that. And it doesn't matter if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or a hunter or whatever, they get that. And so that comes from inside of people. And like I said, the appreciation for someone that grows something in their garden and shares it is the exact same as a hunter. And it's completely removed from 
buying something at Safeway or Save on Foods that showed up from another part of the world. They're, you know, those are two totally divergent approaches. So I go to after my sausage parties, which I'll go to my neighbor. I got two neighbors on this side, and two neighbors on this side. I really like, and so I'll take my packages of sausages and walk down and say hello and you know, yep. give a package of sausages. And I mean, it's not like I. I wouldn't be at Costco, like, going, oh, shit, there's a great sale exactly, on some yeah. sausage yeah. here. I'm going to buy, like, the 20 pounds of sausage, and then I'm going to yeah. package it up into, like, yeah. one pound back, and it'll be, like, go over to my neighbors and say, like, here's some great, I got totally. a great deal on these sausages. Totally, right? yeah. It's just not the same. It's just a different different way it, of it's sharing. It's like when you move into a, you know, a new neighborhood or a new house. Like, people bring you over something that they baked. Yeah. They don't bring you over a donut that they bought at Tim Hortons, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's that's part, of, but it's part of like that's part of like this human condition. And when you do that with your neighbors, when you give them meat, again, you know, those are people that might be at a party or at a social function. Somebody going, oh well, these hunters, you know, all they care about is killing stuff, blah blah blah. blah. And your neighbor's going to go, wait a second, my neighbor hunts. He comes over and he brings me meat and blah blah blah. blah and he's a super good guy and he really cares about wildlife. So, so in that case, you know, just through your own networks, if we have 100,000 hunters doing that across the province of BC, I mean, you're going to have 3 million advocates for hunting that don't hunt, right? That's what you'll have. That's how this network analysis works. So, you know, if we all do that, if we all take that approach, you will change the narrative around hunting for sure. Well, absolutely. And, that, and that's why I was so pumped to see that community of folks that were at our event. And because those people are, you know, they're, they're between 20, Five and forty-two. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, could have said forty-two because that includes me now. Um, uh, but relatively young folks that you know that are influencers in their community. I mean, they they they're awesome. going to go back out to wherever they do, and they're going to have influence. I mean, and you know, and that to me, that's where we're really going to hopefully change some minds, change some perspectives, and and build some momentum. So, no, I, I it was really cool. I really appreciate coming out and and doing that event. And appreciate what you're doing. This is huge in this part of the world, especially. Well, let's do it again. Let's let's yeah. do something in Chilliwack and get see if we can do another event because we had a lot of yeah. uh, these three or four posts. People wanted to see something in Chilliwack, and Perfect. and if, if you know the the vast listening audience of the Eat Well podcast will no doubt hear this and want to come hang out. Um, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but I, I do hope that we get together and just kind of have this discussion more informally or over beers at a pub night or something like that or a brewery night and kind of keep this dialogue going and kind of um, create some community for those people who want to talk about conservation and talk about hunting and. Uh, kind of have something happen every you know two or three months and uh and just yeah create that landing place that you know people can can uh build some momentum from you know mm -hmm. yeah absolutely no it's great all right so this has been jesse jesse zeman yeah, and we can find you where can we find you what's, what's contact uh you can find me and probably google will find you <laughs> yeah really <laughs> um and then the best way is uh I've got it down to 7,000 unread emails right now, but uh, email is probably not the best if you want to get a hold of me. Um, my phone number is on the BCWF website. I think that's the best way is to call and leave a voicemail because uh, otherwise I'm just getting inundated with all kinds of other stuff. Um, so, yeah, if you want to get involved or if you're keen to, to join a club or meet with your MLA or MP and you want some help or support or you have questions, just please feel free to call. Absolutely. So yeah, so the message taken away from this, guys, if you if you are motivated, meet with your MLA, write a letter saying wildlife is important to you and that uh, we need to do a better job of managing for it. And uh, that's going to go a long way. So we'll sign off from here. Thanks again, Jesse. Thanks, Dylan. Okay, we'll see you next time on the Eat Wild Podcast. Mm -hmm.